0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Richard, yes, uh, maybe Kat. this is a really silly <laughs> question, but how busy are you at the moment?
0: I would consider myself to be very hard-pressed for time. Partly because I've got a book house at the moment, so I've been on book talk, I do all sorts of interesting places doing that. Partly because we have the great pleasure of meeting and doing our rabbit hole detectives. Partly also because I've got box blight and the box hedges in my garden have died and so Ben in the, gar- in the garden, my gardener guy, he's doing all the work. So there's a lot happening. Plus I'm writing book three in the series. So I consider myself to be quite busy.
1: How about you Charles?
2: Well I've kept box blight at bay but i have just finished writing a a book that's taken me four or five years and i'm doing this you know all of us have a a, you know how much there is after you've finished a book and also the podcast and all sorts of things back at home
1: so would it be fair to say that if somebody found a way to deliver all the day's news to you in a single five minute source created read from the best of the world's media would that be helpful do
0: you mean A curated source in an easily digestible (laughs) form of all the headline-making news in the world.
1: Yes, so you (laughs) don't have to go out and find it yourself, but you could just get it to you. Would that be useful? I'd love it. If possible. Yes, well... Luckily, somebody's actually found a way of doing just Uh (laughs) that. And it's called The Knowledge. And The Knowledge is a free daily newsletter and it makes the news manageable.
0: Fill me up with knowledge.
1: Where would you find it? So you just have to sign up. It's very easy. You can sign up for free at theknowledge.com, Brought to you by John Connell, founder of The Week. And that gives you five minutes daily news and that's it. The Knowledge makes news manageable.
2: Holding pocket.
1: Welcome to the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles, and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit hollers. How's everyone today? Very
2: bouncy. Yeah. Tiggerish. It's quite warm. Yes, it is.
1: It's fine. It? But we yeah. mustn't be
2: lethargic because that would be, you know, we're, we're going to go for the summer feel. The yeah. Bunting and few clothes. Yes. Well,
1: <laughs> yes, party. I mean, that's
0: nice, isn't it? Just, I love that thing about summer who you can just traipse around everywhere in sandals and shorts, you mm. uh,
1: know. I do like that and summery dresses. And...
0: I was watching The Leopard, the film, the Visconti version of the Il Gattopardo novel, and, and it's set in Sicily in high summer and then. The aristocrats all dressed up and then there were all these priests in black Catholic. and you just think it it's must have been a hundred degrees and they're having to walk around all this kit
2: i've seen that up in um canada just north of toronto there's this area which became very fashionable in the 19th century for rich industrialists from the northeast of america they go up there to get away from the heat every photograph they're in full yeah primary kit, you know, the, the hats and the the thick jackets. And you just think, why? It's just social convention, I guess. You know I went on about St. Paul last time? Yes. yes. Well,
0: June the 29th is the Feast of St. Peter and St. Paul. And it is traditionally, because of that, Peter Tide, its known the time of ordinations. It's a really bad time to be a vicar because you have to go to the cathedral for hours and hours and hours in as much kit as you will ever wear in church in the swelteriest week of the year. And every time I do it I think, I wish, I wish, I wish I'd been an Olympic swimmer. Well then just have speedos.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well I'm gonna (laughs) avoid that and plow on. Um but in the mid-70s I was a page of honour to the late Queen and You were really on duty very few times a year, and one of them was at the state opening of Parliament. And you're wearing, you know, a full-on sort of 18th century kit. And it's hot. It's summer, right? Really hot. And you end up with the old TV lights in those days were incredibly hot. So the colonel, Colonel Blair Stuart Wilson, I remember, would take us aside before the ceremony and teach us how to get through the shattering heat and not faint. And it was to do with just gently because it's all televised. You don't want to draw attention to yourself while the queen's speaking and presenting the bills, uh, what's coming up in Parliament. You just rock gently on the fronts of your feet, and it somehow keeps your. It's meant to keep your circulation going. It's not that. I think it's a way of just disengaging from the extreme discomfort around you.
0: Ceremony hurts, right?
2: Yes, that's about it. <laughs> well, do you know what
0: <laughs> well, you think about well, true troop in the color, and That's mm. what they do. There's always some poor guardsman. Or there's that bloke from the Household Cavalry who. Totter's over. And they're trained to faint forwards and not to bother about breaking their teeth or their noses, but you have to do it neatly, right? right? And it's considered a point of honour that you faint neatly.
1: So, shall we go into our topics for the week? I think I'm the one starting this week and I've actually chosen one of the subjects sent in by one of our listeners. Somebody uh-huh. called Stella cool. So Stella, this is yours and I love this one. It's dogs with jobs. Oh, Brilliant. And obviously we've talked about dogs quite a bit and I would argue that dogs by definition have jobs because the difference between a wolf and a dog is that they are essentially working for us, aren't they? We domesticated them. It's a
0: wolf with a job, right? <laughs> it is.
1: Yeah. A dog yes. is a wolf with a job. <laughs> so that's you know as a good starting point, really. And I, I think every dog owner will know something about their breed's background and how they're being bred to, for that purpose. But I did fall into the whole domestication um, of a dog's rabbit hole. And actually, we still don't quite know when it happened. We think now it happened between 27,000 and 40,000 years ago. Right. We also don't quite know how. We've got the oldest known dog burial dates to 14,000 years ago. So clearly by that point they are pets. But it might be because of, you know, people getting a surplus of meat so that they could actually share it. Um, obviously, if you don't have enough meat, then the dogs or the wolves will want the meat. So maybe that's got something to do with it. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. But they're obviously very useful for hunting and protection and all of that. So clearly it's sort of, it becomes a really useful uh, relationship very, very quickly. And they become hunting partners more than anything else. There's a really interesting theory that it was called survival of the friendliest and <laughs> that's um the idea of self-domestication as well so that they're sort of the cutest and friendliest looking of the wolves are more successful because if they're too scary then people won't want to domesticate them yeah. unless
2: they're a guard dog I yeah,
1: suppose but still but you, you want to get close to them mm. a
0: guard dog all it wants to do is just sit on its lap and be stroked and lick your face and it's got this awful job having to scare people I'm not Absolutely.
2: made for this <laughs> so Ridgeback.
1: Yeah. Now, obviously, when you talk about dogs with jobs, you could go anywhere. And when I was little, one of the ones I was really obsessed with was the Saint Bernard. Yeah. So I've had to look into Saint Bernards um, because. Obviously, we used to be in Norway, you'd go skiing from the age of about two, and uh, you're up in the mountains quite a lot. And I always remember being really little and having this dream that a huge, fluffy St. Bernard was going to come and rescue me if I got into trouble with a barrel. Not so much of rum, but maybe of hot chocolate or something like that, because that's what the cartoons told me. And St. Bernard's are really, really interesting dogs. So they... Start well, so St. Bernard Mountain Pass, the great St. Bernard Pass, 8,000 feet above sea level in the Western Alps, and it's only a pass that's only snow free for a a few months during the summer. And a monastery, an Augustine monk, established a, a hospice and monastery there around the year 1050, so it goes back a really, really long way. And it was essentially to help trackers, people walking across these paths, that their hospice was set up. And Sometime in the uh, late 17th century, the monks there started acquiring dogs to help them, so to help these travellers. So these were the four to the St. Bernard breed. They weren't quite the same as they look like today, but they were helping them get through the snow so they could pack down the snow. They were really, really useful for that.
2: Can I ask who St. Bernard was? I bet you know, Richard. Was was Well, there are a few, maybe St. Bernard of
0: Clairvaux, I think, who was a Cistercian, great reformer of the monas- Western monastic tradition. And I assume if you've got a monastery up there, it would be Bernard and look clever.
1: So what they did was they started using these dogs because they were so helpful. Uh, around the turn of the 17th century, you had these servants called maronias who were assigned to accompany travellers across this pass with the dogs. So they also had really, really good sense of smell, so they, anyone lost in the snow, they could search them out. Apparently they could set them out in packs of two or three alone to seek them out and one would stay with the person who was injured and heat them up so you can snuggle up with this dog and then would go back to rescue them. And for the next 150 years, these were so popular and so useful that they were saving hundreds and hundreds of people's lives. And when Napoleon and his 250,000 soldiers crossed through the pass between 1790 and 1810, apparently not a single soldier lost his life That's going amazing. across that pass because of this system. So these chronicles are telling about all their lives that were saved by the dogs. The actual cask thing is a much more recent... Unfortunately, that doesn't go... It's more of a <laughs> gimmicky thing, apparently.
0: But well, you know what, as well, I mean, strictly speaking... Someone who's suffering hypothermia, the last thing you want to give them is alcohol. <laughs> yes, because actually bad you. I expect they've probably now got, I don't know, kombucha or maybe a muesli bar. <laughs> yeah,
1: something. something like that would be much more helpful, wouldn't it? Ready break. Yeah, but I love the fact that they were genuinely so useful. And the most famous ones, if you go to Switzerland, apparently the most famous of them is a St. Bernard called Barry. Oh. Aww. And Barry the St. Bernard saved over 40 lives as a mountain rescue dog. And he's now, his body, his remains are now in a museum. Oh. Actually, it's a great
2: name for a dog, though. Barry. Barry the
1: St. Bernard. Yeah. Yeah. I think that Barry was, was a,
0: stuffed clearly. and put in a case. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, he was just to sort of commemorate him. But yeah, so he was the most famous one. So, not know, all the, the dogs with jobs are very nice and happy stories. And one that I didn't know about were the turnspit dogs. Have you heard of turnspit dogs? No. no. So these were hugely popular um, in England, especially, because one of the, the main ways of cooking large cuts of meat from the 16th century onwards was over a cooking spit in the yeah. kitchen. But the problem is you have to keep turning that spit all the time. And obviously that would be someone like a servant or a small child or, or somebody like that. Which is a, it was a very hot and horrible job. Yes, so somebody invented essentially like a big hamster wheel or a quite small hamster wheel that a dog was placed into. And these dogs were bred to be turnspit dogs. They were extremely popular and common. Uh, you go places and you actually see these, these sort of little wheels hung up quite high and the little dog runs around in them. They were worked six days a week. Ooh. Apparently they were given a day off on Sunday, but not really for their well-being, but they would accompany the family to church so that they could heat their feet, and lying on their feet when they were cold.
2: Well, you'd have thought the Sunday roast was probably the most important day in the spit's life.
1: Yes, that's a good point, actually. Yes. Mm. Maybe they
2: oven roasted it. I think they, they <laughs> that's cooked yes. it on
1: Saturday and then it was ready. <laughs> and so awful. They were actually called, so Carl Linnaeus um, named them Canis Vertigus, Dizzy Dog, because they were constantly running around and turning and... Darwin actually said that this was a key example of how they were selective breeding because they were these small, long, actually quite ugly looking dogs. So they went out of fashion quite quickly. But interestingly, in Britain, it was cheap spit-turning machines that stopped them from being used rather than the welfare of the dogs. But in America, they were used in in large hotel kitchens especially. And in the 1850s, people were really appalled at how these dogs were treated. So... The treatment of these essentially led to the founding of the SPCA, which is the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And that was directly came out of the treatment of these dogs, which was... Isn't uh, it
2: funny? That must have been a period where people really thought about things. Because going back a few episodes, that's when the poor houses were looked at. That's when child slavery essentially was ended in the UK, etc. You have black beauty. A novel
0: uh, written really out of, provoked by the awfulness, the mistreatment of forces, yeah. So, so all people, of we started imagining, empathising with, with animals. Yeah,
1: I think people are sort of starting to think that that, that was the accepted thing to do, but maybe it wasn't okay. And yes. I think this is a societal thing, isn't it? They sort of yeah. go, yeah, okay, we've been doing that for a very long time, but it's That's not horrible. actually yeah. a right thing to do. But slightly... More positive note, um, (laughs) my other sort of dog with jobs that I'm really interested in is various medical dogs, some dogs that detect odours. And this is actually a really hugely developing field. And you now have dogs that can detect everything from epileptic seizures to diabetes to different forms of cancer, COVID. Dogs, so you had all these COVID sniffing dogs and malaria as well. And experiments actually show that they have a hugely, a really, really high percentage of success rate. And what it seems to be is that any of these illnesses, diseases, cause very, very small changes in the human body and in our metabolism that changes the sort of odours that we emit. And we can't smell them or sense them at all. But these different compounds are emitted and they're caused. Some of them are caused by viruses. They might be caused by bacteria. So, if somebody's having an epileptic fit, there's actually tiny little changes in the physiology and metabolism taking place, and it emits a smell. I
0: had, I had an assistance dog come to my one of my book. Well it wasn't assistance dog my <laughs> oh, book sorry, event, but yeah. the owner of the assistant <laughs> dog, and that assistance dog was to detect the likelihood of an epileptic seizure. Yeah, it's so
1: incredible, it. They, isn't it? They yeah. do that, and apparently with that, also there's little behaviour changes. But it's also that scent and they can do that and they can be trained to pick up on pretty much any scent like that so as long as you can isolate that scent to do with that problem you know they cancel whatever it is Mm. they can do that
0: my own dogs when we go for a walk the first section of the walk is them sniffing the world Mm. dachshunds you know they are hounds Mm. and they are built to smell obviously their world is a world of smell almost before anything else i think and you have to just let them do that before
2: and that's right Kat touched on the thing that different breeds need to do. And I've got a Cocker Spaniel called Joey. And Joey, although he's two, is just an explosion of puppy energy still. And the first thing you have to do when you take him out is give him Five minutes of madness. Yes. Where he oh, just crazy. runs and runs and runs, and then yeah. eventually he calms down and becomes vaguely normal. But if you didn't do that, you'd just have the most terrible walk ever.
1: My dog, I take her down the road, and she will just sniff like mad, and it's like an update. I think of everything that's happened, yes, and it feels a bit. It's true. like a social media. Feed. It's like her looking at her Twitter feed and seeing what everyone's been up to. Google for dogs. Yes, so, absolutely. Yes. And they're sniffing just sniffing
0: the world. Doing and very brave what they sniff. You know, it's sort of everything. Well, if you've had a churchyard which has provided temporary shelter for the homeless, you'd be really careful of the uh, dog yes well, the dog brought back Oof. well you know yeah. i've it's got a terrible dog with a job story have you <laughs> do you want
1: it i do actually yeah
0: have you ever been for a ride in a sledge drawn by huskies
1: i haven't no well way. i have yeah
0: this occurred in lapland and i shared this sleigh ride with mr christopher biggins the well-known actor and anyway, we got in this sledge, and the huskies, which were you hear, they're just these balls of energy, screaming, screaming, because all they want to do is run and run and run. And they, your, your cart is tethered to them. And there was Christopher Pickens, wrapped in furs, so I would say, looking like the Dowager Empress. And then I was steering it, which was tremendous fun. And the huskies get going. But the reason you use a husky, the reason why they're such effective energy source is because they are fed, I think, 25 kilos of meat a day. And that's got to go somewhere, folks. So let me tell you, Riding Husty said it's like a high velocity dirty protest because they literally expel in your face and everywhere that processed meat that has given them the energy necessary for them to do their jobs. So dogs with jobs in every sense of the word. Mm,
1: that's a nice <laughs> Be warned. lovely thought. Maybe I'm not amazing because really you thought,
0: wow, that's such a treat, but not really, is it? <laughs> it's a treat until you have to deal with Christopher Biggins in Pebble Dash anyway. <laughs>
1: So I was really struggling to find my favourite fact, though. Yes. But there was one thing that I thought was really cute. You know, I'm obsessed with finding the earliest everything. So in this time, I was trying to find some of these earlier examples of dogs with jobs. couldn't really find one. But the Egyptians obviously domesticated dogs and had lots of them buried with them as well. And there was a what seems to be a sight hound or hunting dog who is probably the earliest known named dog. Oh. So in a, an Egyptian tomb, there's a, an inscription that dates to just over 4,000 years ago. And the dog is called Abuchu. Okay. So I love the idea of little Abuchu, the sight dog.
2: I do too. I think two syllables is better when you're calling a dog. (laughs) Three gets a bit messy. Yeah. My favorite dog from history was um, called Boy, and he was a giant poodle. And he was the much-loved pet of Prince Rupert of the Rhine, someone who pops up occasionally. You Uh, love Prince Rupert of the (laughs) Rhine. I do. I find him so fascinating. But... To the parliamentarians who he was fighting, he was the main royalist general at the end of the English Civil War. He was considered a devil because he was too good at stuff, so he must therefore be a devil. And Boy, who was constantly by his side, was in the propaganda at the time, was seen as a devil's familiar. Boy rode into battle with Prince Rupert and was a terrifying sight and people ran away from him. And essentially, Prince Rupert won All of the skirmishes and battles that, or or had a good showing anyway, in all the battles he appeared in in the early parts of the war. And then in 1644, Boy was killed at the Battle of Master Moor. And really, uh, Prince Rupert never won another battle. It's almost like that superstition came true.
0: I've thought of this really awful dog with a job story.
1: Mm. Do we want to end on the Downer, Laika? Oh.
0: The first creature in space. space. Do you remember the Russians sent up Laika? sent her up into orbit, but didn't provide any means for Laika to return from orbit. Yeah, the thing I was thinking the other day when we think of that awful situation on the Titans, so when there was a thought that they might be awaiting rescue. And it's just made me think of that, this poor dog sort of circling the earth wide oh. for but vital
2: signs. And then still there, of course. And is it Gullard? Was that be the right pronunciation? Oh, Gullard. Janet. Who was left by one of the Saxon kings of England as a guard dog to look after his baby in a cot and when the king came back he was appalled to find blood everywhere and the cot upside down and blood from Gallert's jaws and he killed galert thinking he had killed his child but then the baby cried it was there and next to it was a dead wolf that galert had oh. killed so he'd actually done his job but was murdered Do you know that story ranks for me
0: with old yeller as yes. morally unbearable. Yes. The I universe in which quit. that happens is not a universe that I no, want to be part no.
1: of. I think we just think of... Can we just think of Lassie or something? <laughs> <Yes. Just> say, <laughs> no. Or Sury. Some from, from Tintin. St. Bernard. Yes,
2: Barry the St. Bernard. Let's just, is it because he had a barrel? Barry. was known as Barry.
1: Barry the St. Bernard with a barrel. <laughs> that's the one. Let's all think about Barry. So, oh, wow. Charles, I think...
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: It's over to you now. And we're about to start the summer holidays and traveling. So can you tell us a little bit more about jet lag, please?
2: Yes. Well, there's a very obvious point about the story of jet lag is that it is a modern story. So normally I'm going back to ancient Greece or whatever, but jet lag only started in the 1950s because that's when jets started to propel commercial customers around the world. There's no such thing as ship lag. So, for instance, we know Christopher Columbus took two months on his voyage and crossed what we would consider nine time zones. No one notices that. And I know, Richard, you've done talks on vessels where, you know, going across the Atlantic, okay, they reset the clock, I think, by an hour or something, but you don't notice it, do you? It's
0: a very civilized way to travel because you don't get jet lag.
2: Yeah. So, The problem for humans is that there has been no adaptation to this phenomenon. It's brand new for our systems. And essentially, you're dealing with the very, very basic body clock, the circadian rhythm, which is set by light as much as anything. And it's attached to all sorts of organs. They all feed this circadian self at the center of your brain, really. Not literally, but it's a a sort of fundamental clock in your brain. And so what this means, once all the research I did comes back to one point, which is that jet lag is unbeatable. There are ways of lessening its burden, but until you can change the very basic setup of the human mechanism, you're not going to beat it. The one thing I have found, the latest research would say, that the most important part of dealing with jet lag is to preempt it. You shouldn't wait till you've got it. You should go to bed at a different time. Work out the daytime hours that you should expose yourself to light and others that you shouldn't. We know, for instance, that it's very bad news to look at a computer late at night. That disrupts your sleeping patterns. That's because the average day on Earth has blue in the morning and not in the evening. So blue in your eye sockets late at night, is going to really jumble up your brain and your time scale.
0: Everybody does that, Charles, don't they?
2: Yeah. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, check yeah. your phone. Well... I mean, obviously I do it too, but it's a very bad thing to do, particularly with jet lag. I love the fact that jet lag as a term only existed, it was written about in 1966, the first time we can find it, in the LA Times, and it was seen as a sort of equivalent of a a glorious hangover, it was called. And it is a very fundamental part of a hangover in that feeling, that grogginess, that Mm -hmm. flu almost. So one of the more interesting characters I came across was this man called Wiley Post, who was a very famous aviator in the 1930s. And he, without realizing it, got to the nub of it. He wanted to fly around the world as the first man and quickest man to do it. And he achieved it. He wrote, His book is called Around the World in Eight Days, which is quite a good title. <laughs> um, but what he did consciously before his flight was break his sleep pattern because he realized that was the hardest part. It wasn't the actual aviation. He was a good aviator. But several weeks before he went flying, he made sure that he slept at random times so he could not be a slave to this appalling jet lag. Essentially, he said, you know, it can be 6.32 in Siberia, lunchtime in London, and New Yorkers are getting up at the same time. This was such an astonishing thing to the 1930s mind. People hadn't addressed that at all. And people almost didn't believe it being possible. Only with the invention of jet travel as a major means of transport from the mid-50s, really, until the mid-70s, that people came to terms with it. And you'll see all sorts of treatments that people swear by, and maybe they have a sort of placebo effect. Acupuncture maybe some people put grains of flour or seeds or whatever on their temples. One thing that possibly helps a lot, again, going back to the preemptive strike, is fasting for 16 hours before you take a long haul jet. For some reason, that helps the circadian rhythm reset. There's a bit when you were living half in... The, on the west coast of America
0: and half in the UK. So you must have been flying in that inauspicious direction from
2: west to east a lot. So did you get better at jet lag? Yes, I worked out that for about eight years I was traveling backwards and forwards from California 20 times a year. Yeah. That's an eight-hour time difference most of the year. I did various tricks. So on the changing of the clocks, the clocks change at different times in the US and UK. I'd always make sure I traveled when it was seven hours. It's amazing what a difference that makes. The basic science on jet lag is it takes a day per hour's time zone to readapt. So what I did, because I was doing it so frequently, I never fully adapted to either. So in LA, I would get up at three in the morning And i try and sort of truncate my working day between the two. That's what aircrew
0: do, isn't it? They just
2: stay on one time. Well, that's the interesting thing. So for me, just as a, a normal civilian, having jet lag is what it is. It's just an unpleasant byproduct of too much travel. But how to cope with someone really important, like an airline pilot. And it was NASA. NASA, when jet travel became really important, NASA was given the job, how do we keep our pilots safe? And they're the ones who said you have to have almost compulsory rest time for pilots. That's why you end up with bedrooms for the crew on long-haul flights, which are hidden away, obviously, from the passengers. But it's essential. You can't get round it. And in fact, this is brought home most vividly in the Mars project. The people on Earth monitoring machinery flying to Mars have to do it 24 hours a day. Well, the problem is the Mars Day isn't 24 <laughs> hours. So you, you are instantly committed to incredible problems in terms of timing. So the Mars Day is called a sol, And it is over 24 hours. It's 24 hours and 39 minutes and 35 seconds. You think, well, that's nothing. Mm. To adapt by 40 minutes a day is nothing. But if you think about it, you move two time zones every three days. And when these people were first put on duty to monitor machinery flying to Mars, they were given three-month commissions. Well, none of them could hack it. Mm. And they actually had what they considered. It's not been proven, but there was probably a rebellion among them saying they just couldn't. They were going home at very odd times, odder and odder and odder. And that 40 minutes a day really did, it was too much for them to bear. Fascinating. And there, there will be that problem when and if people inhabit Mars, how you cope with that. You mentioned earlier, Richard, that there's a there's an easier way to travel. Do you say eastward or westward was well, the easiest? My experience yeah. with jet lag is that if
0: I'm flying, well, I'm looking at a sort of Mercator projection. But if I'm flying from America to Asia,
2: I don't, I'd rather go the other. I can't remember, Charles, actually, which is the worst one.
1: Going east is worse. East, isn't it?
2: Eastwards is worse, and that, that is because you're truncating your day if you're going westwards, whereas you're elongating it yeah. going eastwards. Yeah. And therefore, it throws you more. I mean, both are disastrous, you know, for your circadian rhythm. And also, there's a lot of scientific studying of how damaging this is long-term to air crews or people who travel a lot for work, because it does interfere with your gut health. And we're getting more and more knowledgeable about what the gut means and what it needs. But the there's The panini I had on Jet 2 would have interrupted with anyone's
0: <laughs> but That's by the by.
2: It's a very, very difficult thing because I know everyone has theories about what it is. And there's this book written by a 747 pilot, great book, and it's called Skyfaring. And he basically said that the most unappreciated part of jet lag is place lag, as he called it. Mm. So it's not just the fact that you're, tra- you're flying for nine hours to Beijing. When the airport door opens, you're entering an entirely alien world. And that overwhelms you psychologically as well. Mm. So it fuses with the discomfort of the circadian rhythm to hit you really hard. It's very exciting to It's very stimulating. I love it. Mm. And that, you know, you do get everywhere you go in the world, you get a fresh Smell, really, don't you? We
1: talked about that previously in an episode, didn't we? We did. Smell some the awful, places.
0: Yeah. Uh, here's a question for you, Charles. Again, mm. another place you lived was South Africa. Now, yes. that's a 12-hour flight, 10-hour flight? Yeah,
2: 11 or so, yes. But guess what? You're in the same time zone. It's, it's extraordinary, that. Yes, yeah, yeah. so people do go down... If they're lucky enough, you see people going down to Cape Town for the weekend. And depending on, so they don't move their time, like the UK or US, you have springtime or you know whatever you call it, British summertime. But in South Africa, they just plod along on the same time. So you think how far you've gone and you wake up in Cape Town and you're only an hour or maybe two hours for half the year. Out of the UK time zone. You've flown a long way, but you've not got jet lag. And that is extraordinary, yes. I was a foreign correspondent for 10 years or whatever. You get used to the, anything under five hours I can take, anything over five hours is a serious problem. And the worst jet lag I ever had, I had to go to do, I was giving a talk in Auckland. And I reckoned so that, I think it's 12 hours' time difference that took me about a month and a half to get over. It. And I don't know why it took quite I'm obviously it's a lot, yeah. but that is a very long time to get over something.: One of the weirdest things
0: ever I had to go to Sydney to interview Baz Luhrmann. and then I had
2: to fly home
0: via Japan to interview an architect in Kansai Airport, Renzo Piano, as it turned out. So I'd flown from London. To Sydney for one day or two days and then flown to Canada. And I arrived at some weird time and I stayed in a capsule hotel. Oh, yes. And I woke up and I had for, I should think, 30 seconds no idea of where I was, who I was, what was happening. It was the most... A typical Sunday morning for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like it was like I didn't know if I had woken up from a dream or had fallen asleep into a dream. Yes, I was so disoriented by this thing. It was such an odd thing. Yes, mm.
1: the only time that really happens to me as well is when you travel like that, because you are so unaware of what. It's going on, especially yeah. if you fall at the wrong time and yeah. in a different bed. No, it's... You have no bearing. No. You?
2: It's different, jet lag, for men and women. I mean, the average yeah. rhythm of a day for a woman is 24 hours and 6 minutes, and for a man it's 24 hours and 12 minutes. We adapt to that. We can adapt to that. But throw that in with an eight-hour time difference, and it all, it all sort of creeps up. This is why, A, we shouldn't fly at all it's so ghastly, but B, surface travel is so much better. That's why
0: I really like to go around in... Ships, well, they have their own carbon issue. But the surface
2: travel thing, I think, is so much more civilized if it works. Can I just deal with some of the myths as to things that cure? And I'm not belittling anyone who's listening who this works for. That's wonderful. But just sleeping when you want to sleep is not a good way of dealing with it. You still have to deal with the the essence of the circadian rhythm being interrupted. And it's about light and activity, etc. Sleep medications, they can really mess around with that because you can end up being asleep when you should be awake to catch that particular light. Melatonin does have an effect, a good effect in tiny doses. You can get it legally in the US, but you want sort of 0.3 milligrams. Most people take five or six. That's going to really not help adapt the clock. Viagra in small amounts helps, but of course there are side effects you have to take into account. You know, going for a 7 a.m. run, that's a myth. Trust the airplane lighting, that's a myth. Airplanes like to present that they're really thoughtful about the passenger with their lighting and the times of the meals. That's just for their convenience. There's nothing nothing in it for the passenger. Travelling in business class, well, that's very nice if you can. But it has no effect on your jet lag. Stay at a nice hotel, the same. Stay hydrated, well, that is a good thing, but it's nothing to do with the cure for jet lag. And then battle through sleeplessness with a lot of caffeine, again, The bottom line in all of this is you have to be awake at the right time in the right light to ward off the worst effects of jet like. don't go anywhere <laughs> yeah,
1: stay at home stay at home yeah, a long boat or something they oh
0: I would love a long boat yeah. provided I could have a luxury accommodation in a sub floating
2: palace next door for night time yeah that's fine yes, we can see. do that
1: for you we can do that for
2: you like one of the lakes on Schrodinger in Kashmir they have those floating houseboats. oh yes. I've never been I'd so love to but go I've out. done that it's very, beautiful. It's it's very beautiful. beautiful these are literally first world problems aren't yes. they yes yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> for three <laughs> and did you have a favourite fact
2: yes of? my favourite fact look the whole essence of what I've shared with you today is that it's a modern phenomenon. But I love that essentially jet lag, or at least place lag, is dealt with in the American Declaration of Independence. Shut up. George III had, as one of his faults, insisting on people attending meetings at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant for the sole purpose of fatiguing them. And they realized that was untenable, and they wanted that addressed. They didn't want to be moved around arrive exhausted and then be addressed into a political conversation but listen we've all watched succession right you haven't watched it no no
0: too close to home but it's all about billionaires who fly around the world doing deals in private jets and you think wow they must just all be crazy with fatigue and dehydration and jet lag i wonder how many important people who have to fly around the world doing stuff are actually not great at what they do because they are tired and jet lagged and exhausted
2: well actually somebody working for me we were trying to do some deal with someone and they unconsciously sent an email saying take advantage of him now because he'll be jet lagged (laughs) so it is part of a business strategy yeah
1: that is cheeky Mm
2: -hmm. did you reply Well, I always like to reply to those ones, just saying, I'm sure this wasn't meant for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. There's no point in being rude. It's much more more Actually, Make
1: them know that you know. (laughs) (laughs) That was brilliant. Thank you for that, Charles. And that leaves us with the last one, Richard. And you are going to be telling us all about black tie today.
0: Yeah, we're talking about uncomfortable clothes you have to wear in hot weather because social (laughs) convention requires it. Well, after I leave this studio... I'm going to be doing the nearest thing I get to being Superman. And that is disappearing into a lavatory on a train and emerging, not in my summer shirt and the shorts everything, ring, in black tie because I'm going to Glyndebourne this evening. Glyndebourne, the opera festival down in Sussex, near where I live. And the convention there, although it's a convention that's slightly loosening, interestingly, at the edges, is for gentlemen to wear black tie. So that's what I'll be doing. I'll be emerging out of the gents on the train, dressed in black tie, Ooh ah, No one will notice because you see it all the time its climb on. But why? Well, the convention, if you're doing a posh do, or if you're a posh person of dressing differently, of course, goes back a very long time. Look at portraits of sort of grandees of the 17th, 18th century, and they would be dressing in very, very luxurious and expensive and lovely clothes. But the kind of thing we mean by black tie, one of your heroes, Charles, Beau Brummel, played a very significant part in this. The great dandy of the region dandy's the wrong word he wasn't a dandy he was an artist i think and he was an artist who liked to work in a palette of black and white so he was exquisitely dressed but he was dressed often in like black clothes and a white shirt keeping your black clothes black was very difficult because black was an expensive dye keeping your white shows white in a dirty old town like that was extremely difficult because of you know you had to launder everything all the time and so people started wearing these sorts of clothes black and white. White tie became conventional as a sort of sign of highest grandeur. You would use that for, for example, court dress, still court dress today, or a ball. You might go to a ball. And I think it's an interesting thing. I used to be a curate at St. Paul's Knightsbridge, which is a posh London church. But in the 19th century... You must have hated it. I adored it. (laughs) In the the 19th century, when high society was genuinely high, they used to have a thing called a jewellery collection and every now and then they would a plate would go round and ladies of the parish would put you know, some old tiara in want or a necklace or some earrings and stuff. And the jewels were taken from that. And all the sacred vessels, the chalices, were encrusted. And if you look at the the chalices now, they literally are dripping with what look like earrings because they were earrings, because people lived that sort of a life. You would wear tiaras, you would wear, you know, diamond. Not done now, unless it's perhaps a state banquet or something like that. And black tie sort of democratized it. Now, one of your ancestors plays a significant part in this, Charles, which I expect you know. The second Earl Spencer, who was the man who liked shorthorns, I think, isn't he? His son did
2: shorthorns. He was in charge of the Navy and promoted Nelson.
0: The second Earl? Yes. Well, he also was responsible for the Spencer. Mm. The Spencer was a short-tailed jacket.
2: Jackets always had tails until he came along. Do you know why? I do. Well, you it's your answer. <laughs> I you don't, say, well, well, tell me. He went to sleep in front of the fire in the library. And, um, some embers fell onto the tail and burnt it, and he didn't want to throw away his favourite coat, so he had the remains of the tail cut off.
0: So that was the first tail. It became a hugely fashionable thing, not just with men, but with women actually. When the Empire line dress came in in the Regency, mm. again, you didn't want to have tails obscuring the line of the skirt. So women started wearing short jackets, and that sort of became fashionable. Who is an arbiter of fashion? It's very often the Prince of Wales, actually, or has been in uh, in English circles. And Edward Seventh, he had a jacket, rather like a smoking jacket, in midnight blue silk. He starts wearing that, other people start wearing it. There's rather a fashion for having smoking jackets. As well. In fact, in, in Europe, lots of places still refer to what we would call a dinner jacket, or the Americans would call a tux, as a smoking Le jacket. smoking. Le smoking, mm. Yeah. They were often in dark colours. They were kind of burgundy, perhaps, or a brown colour. Black became a standard eventually. And then the black tie, the black bow tie, it was what we would consider, you know, a black tie event would be quite, as everyone dressing up like mad. It was actually dressing down, originally.
2: Mm. It was meant to be more relaxed and less formal than, for example, white tie and tails. Well, can I ask, Richard, I'm, I've only ever once worn white tie. How often have you worn it? It's just not something you, I'd have to rent it, you know. <laughs> A couple of times, once livery dinners. Yes. Um, and sometimes you'll have white tie
0: livery dinners, the very highest livery dinners. Another time, actually, was a very grand party. But because I'm a clergyman, I'm excused. So I wear the high, the equivalent of clerical dress, which for black tie, which involves an incredibly uncomfortable high, full collar and a stock and all kinds of...
2: Is that breeches as well, or is that something else?
0: Yeah, breeches and a frock coat with that, yeah. if you wanted. I mean, if you
2: went to golf Day at Windsor, that's the mm. kind of thing you would wear. I think it was my grandfather told me that... On an invitation, it would say, dress formal. That meant white tie, and informal <laughs> meant black, and black tie. tie. And that was really Edward 8th short-reigning King
0: Edward Eighth, when he was Prince of Wales. Again, the Prince of Wales as an arbiter of fashion, I think, was deliberately trying to... His father, George Fifth, was rather stiff and rigid and rather formal, and he was trying to, you know, kind of do it a different way, as princes of Wales often do. And so he rather popularised a sort of loose-fitting jacket with a shawl neck and a loose black tie. I mean, to us it seems very stuffy and formal, and I will slightly resent being at Glyndebourne, see, because I'm having to wear all this kit in, in, on a hot day.
2: Would you not be allowed into Glyndebourne if you were wearing something
0: else? But interestingly, Charles, it's breaking down now. For example, at Glyndebourne, which I think used to be a sort of watering hole for the rich, I mean, it's still an expensive night out, but it's a much more mixed demographic now. And much younger people who are not really signed up to the conventions of black tie. So you'll find people... There was the Hollywood black tie thing was a phenomenon recently. And it was always when you went to the Oscars, mm. some people, for whatever reason, might just not want to wear. Mm. Also, I mean, there's, a, there's an element in this, I think, which was to do with a perception of a uniform of elite. So in Hollywood, for example, if you've got actors coming up, particularly actors who come from black backgrounds, might feel a little bit uncomfortable wearing the uniform of an elite. So they started wearing black tie but ringing the changes. Mm. Not a bow tie, but a, a kind of necktie. And then, of course, various adornments arrived at the convention of wearing a red ribbon on World AIDS Day or for the Oscars, for example, to show your solidarity with people who were suffering as a consequence of that. Mm. So it sort of began to ring the chain. I should, of course, not... There's no way we can mention this without saying that what we would call a dinner jacket and what a French person would call smoking in America would be called a tux. Do you know why? Well, it was
2: invented at Tuxedo Park, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, Tuxedo Park, which was a country club where rich New Yorkers would go. And again, it wasn't quite a Prince of Wales, but it was a son of the owner who decided he was going to ring his changes. And so he started turning up not with this sort of short evening jacket with a black tie and all of a sudden that was born 1886 I think it was took a little while for that to kind of settle and become standard the Prince of Wales who later became Edward VIII he was another one who made it standard and so so that's the interesting thing to us it seems as of the height of formality to them it was rather a dressed down kind of thing Mm -hmm. and the Glyndebourne one is interesting because lots of people who go to Glyndebourne express some discomfort about having to dress up in that way. It's not something they have in their wardrobe. They feel a little, that it might show that they're sort of like wearing the uniform of a world in which they don't particularly want to be. Mm. But that's sort of breaking down again now and you're getting much more, not only different variants, but people consciously not wearing that at all. People lampooning it now, which is a very interesting thing. So you get people who sort of dress up almost like Laurel and Hardy comedy black tie because I'm in the club, but I'm also ironically not being part of the club.
2: It was actually the wealthy tobacco heir, the wonderfully named Griswold Lorillard, who was the, uh, who shocked polite society by sporting the tailless dinner jackie at a ball at the tuxedo club.
0: I have to say, I really like it. And the reason I like it, like I need an excuse to dress up, I don't need an excuse to dress up. <laughs> I like it because it's levelling.
1: Interesting, though, just for the men. Yes. The women, why did that never develop into that same standardised form of dress? You know, so you've got that for men, but women If you were going to do,
0: and your husband was wearing black tie, and it said on the invitation, black tie, which specifically excludes explicit instructions for women. I mean, you could put on a black tie, and you see that at Glyndeville. Now, quite a lot of women will wear black ties, just to make the point, perhaps. What would you think that meant you had to wear? Well,
1: it would be an absolute nightmare, and I would be Googling like mad.
2: Please wear your Norwegian (laughs) national dress.
1: Okay, I would just make it simple and wear my Norwegian, (laughs) yeah.
2: There's also, in very old-fashioned circles in England it's really meant to be that only the host can wear a smoking jacket in their own house which is I ridiculous didn't know that. yeah so he could be pottering around in something much more deconstructed than the, the formal black tie and slippers or whatever else and then expecting his guests to turn up looking that much more rigidly socially acceptable i didn't know that that's yeah. so interesting yeah. isn't it
0: mm. i like it the, the other thing of course this is a plea It's a plea not just to you two. I'm looking at you, Charles Spencer, because you have form in this. Please, 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 tie your own tie. Made-up bow ties are the work of the devil, and they are dragging us down into a pool of ignominy, notoriety, Mm -hmm. and awfulness. It's the easiest thing in the world to tie bow tie. It's easier than putting on a clip-on. Well, I've never managed it, and I'm 59. I've only ever had the ones that clip. Well, that's why I'm looking at you yes. in particular, because I you look. I would have thought, wouldn't you thought that one of the attributes of Charles Spence would be that he could
2: tie bow well, tie? By I the age of two, be, like, yeah. like <laughs> cat on her skis in yeah, Norway. you
1: should have been... But actually, I was, I was
2: listening to an I'm audiobook I'm listening to at the moment is P.G. Woodhouse, and Smith oh, yeah. is one of his characters, and he... Decides he cannot be in the same office as a man who has a clip-on bow tie. Well,
0: I, you know, seriously,
2: because I'm not going to go to war over this. <laughs> well, but you it, might. It, it sounds s- like you might. He's well, t- I, well, I might a go crusade. To right. There's,
1: There's it, actually it, quite a lot of tension like and aggression it. in the room, just for our listeners well, to I like hearing this.
0: about your national costume police who wander the streets
2: yes. on May the 17th and say,
0: "Oi,
1: cat! Yeah, you got the wrong hat. Yeah, go home, change."
0: I
2: if I may, just come back slightly. I, I'm just very <laughs> pleased that you're. Bow tie phase didn't last that long. <laughs> I'm still in a bow tie no, phase. You're not. It, we haven't well, seen I'm one. I'm not going to wear it in a
0: short sleeve shirt in the summer,
2: am I? i be wearing a your bow tie Because your friend Lorna is dressing you so well. I think she's just pushed you gently through that phase into a much more I'm now beautiful. going to wear <laughs> two bow ties.
0: Whenever <laughs> one I on see your navel. You. <laughs> one of the, around, around my navel. Okay. I have got a favourite fact. Yes. I was
1: going to say, because otherwise I think there's going to be a fight breaking okay. out in the room. So I'm a bit worried.
0: I, as a clergyman, am forbidden to wear an item of evening dress, strictly speaking. Do you know what it is? Bow tie. No, no, I can wear as many well, <laughs> the clerical collar words. No, although cummerbunds are evil. Yes, I've no
1: Tiara woman.
0: I would wear a tiara <laughs> for any I wouldn't need any any pretext <laughs> whatsoever. No. The stripe down my trousers. You know that evening dress trousers oh, come yes. with usually a piece of braid or a, or a. Is that a military thing? It's military insignia, uh, oh. and as a cleric, it's not kosher for me to wear military insignia. Oh, so, so strictly speaking, a cleric should not wear the stripe down the side of the trousers. That's fascinating.
1: How oh, interesting! Yeah, there you that. go.
0: That's my favourite black Thank fact. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Well, hopefully, you'll post pictures of yourself all dressed up, emerging from your train toilets. You later. Bet I will, yes. of course final stage um, of this episode then our disembodied voice will completely undemocratically as we've seen pronounce a winner
2: i was just fascinated by cat's turn spit dog so yes cat yes. a worthy winner
1: thank yes. you in name of the oh,
2: bravo i should say get ready for climb ball
0: and get the, gendered <laughs> get the endings, right. bravo.
1: <laughs> thank you very much i'm yeah. delighted with that so before we go we have to just discuss our topics for next week right So I think, Richard, you have got quite a big topic to cover, HIV and AIDS. Got it. Going to be talking about Charles, a much more simple one, card games.
2: Mm -hmm. That's my level.
1: Yeah. And I'm going to be (laughs) covering another listener suggestion, which is toothpaste. Oh. Mm. You get
2: all the gritty ones, don't you? Yeah. (laughs)
1: Thanks. (laughs) So that's it for this week. Thank you to everyone out there for listening, as always. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review because it helps other people find us if they're searching for something new to listen to. And don't forget, you can also suggest some new rabbit holes for us to fall down into in future episodes. Just send us an email on rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. And every Wednesday, one of us will be in the Rabbit Hole Detective column in the Daily Telegraph discussing a favourite fact or two. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice... If you don't know where you're going, any road can take you there. Oh,
2: yeah, kind no, yeah, of profound. profound. <laughs>
1: so goodbye, detectives.
2: Bye, cat. Goodbye. <laughs>